pray for God's blessing on His Word. Lord, we do look to You now. We know that our life streams from the fountain of Your Word. And so we pray this morning that You would give us that life in Jesus Christ through building us up in His Word. And so we pray that You would be the great teacher this morning as You send forth Your Spirit into our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our text this morning is the book of Ezra chapter 3, which is on page 390 and 391 of your pew Bibles. We started this series last week looking at the book of Ezra and covering chapters 1 and 2 and really beginning to answer the question, what are the ways in which God works as He is building His church? Because here we find the exiles coming back from Babylon to Jerusalem in particular, but also to the broader land of Canaan, resettling and seeing God rebuild their uh, country, rebuild their nation, rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall around Jerusalem in their midst and their principles for us as we think about what it means for God to build His church. And last week we saw God's everlasting love fulfilled and bringing His people back, that He will never completely forsake His people, though He has disciplined them in exile in Babylon, He has drawn them back in His grace and seeks for His people to return to Him as well. Well, if you're a builder, you know how important it is to start out things correctly. Otherwise, the entire building will be skewed. And so what we find here is what it means for God's people to put first things first. Let me read for us. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written. And offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that the regular burnt offerings. The offerings of the new moon. And at all the appointed feasts of the Lord. And the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was, yet, was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had uh, from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers And Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the work in the house of God, along with the sons of 
Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the, shout, uh, and the sound was heard far away. Teenage girl, about 15 years old, had just come to faith in Christ, and she was excited about her relationship with the Lord. She was involved with a new church plant, and as it was getting started, they would gather together Sunday morning and Sunday evening for worship, and Wednesday evening for a prayer meeting. And on one particular occasion, as they came to church, she and her family, she and her mother struck up a conversation with the church planter's wife. And the church planter's wife asked the question, so what have you been up to lately? And she said, well, I've been working on a research paper for school and it's taken quite a bit of my time. And yet, here she was at church, she knew that there was much work left to do and the church planter's wife said, well, first things first, right? And what struck this young girl as she was young in the faith was that she was now making decisive decisions to put Jesus first in her life, that she was beginning to order her life around God, around what is first and of most important in her life, which is the worship of God. And here the people now are gathering into the land. We read of them that in the seventh month after they had come, the children of Israel were in the towns and the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem, gathering together as we see in the rest of this chapter to worship the Lord. Now, if you were to relocate to a different city, and probably some of you have done this on numerous occasions in your life, You've moved somewhere new. You've started a new, new job. What were the things that you were most concerned about when you moved? Certainly there are houses to find. There's food to gather. There are uh, doctors to find for your family. There are numerous things that come to the forefront of our mind when we think about relocating. But for the people of God, when they relocated back into the land of Canaan, of first priority was the worship of God. Or for those of you who are soon going off to college and not, maybe not this year, but in years to come, what would be the first thing that you would consider of primary importance when you arrive? Certainly your college schedule is important. Certainly where you're going to live is important. Certainly finding the cafeteria is important. What about worship? What about gathering together with the people of God 
each and every day in worship? Should that not be of primary importance in the life of every Christian? Worship is to be central to the Christian life. It's what we were built for. We were built, we were made, you might say, to look at something that's glorious and marvel at it. We do it all the time. We look at things and we say, that is awesome. That is glorious. I can't believe that that is true. It's because we were made that way. C.S. Lewis in his reflections on the Psalms tells us that the psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. Do not all people say things like that? Come and see this. This is amazing. You've got to look at this on YouTube. You've got to see what I've seen. And when the psalmist declare the glories of God and invite us into His presence and say, now look at His beauty, they're doing the very thing that everybody does because we're built for that. We're built for worshiping something. Or rather, we're built for worshiping someone. And that is God Almighty. And what God is doing in this particular chapter is He's bringing His people back from exile where they have not been able to worship Him rightly in a foreign land. And He's drawing them back that they might put first things first and be restored to worshiping Him. Be restored to gathering together in His presence. Be restored to having fellowship with Him. To receiving all the grace that He has to offer them in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the same ought to be true of each one of us too. That what is of primary importance is that we gather in worship. You might even say that what Christ is doing in our lives through the Gospel of grace is transforming our false worship into true worship. Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks of how all mankind has exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they have sought to worship things in the creation rather than the Creator. And what God is doing in the Gospel is removing all those false objects of worship that distort and deform our lives so that he, then He can replace it with true affections for His Son. So that we want to gather together and worship Jesus. And He can begin to straighten out all the crooked things about our lives. And then in worshiping Him, we become more and more like Him. So oftentimes in the church, people talk about all the externals of worship, which are really in many cases matters of preference. But what is most important about worship is that it is a battle for the human heart. It's a battle for the human heart. What will my heart bow before? What will I trust? Who will I honor? Who will I give praise? It is central to your life. And therefore, God says it's central to the life of my people that they put worship as of primary importance in their lives. One writer said it this way, when we speak of worship then, we are not speaking about an activity of one's life, but speaking of the activity of one's life, which gives its entire focus and direction. It is the activity of our lives. Whether it's gathering together corporately as God's people, 
whether it's doing so in family devotions, whether it's living your personal life as living sacrifices to God, as a pleasing act of worship to Him, in every way our lives are to have as its primary importance the worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, we only have a few minutes left, I know, but let me say three things about what happens when a church puts worship central to the core of its life. Well, the first thing that happens is we become unified. We become unified. Verse 1 speaks of how these people of Israel were in the towns, and yet they gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Here they are gathering together, being united together. In fact, what they gather together for is worship, and in specific, worship during the time of the Feast of the Booths which verse 4 tells us. Now this was a time in which they remembered how God brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness and they celebrated the ingathering of all of their crops by also remembering the fact that God is the one who sustained them during their time in the wilderness, living in tents and in booths. And so here they are gathering together here to worship and The chapter ends with this, you might say, outdoor worship service with the foundations of the temple being laid and they're praising God together. And you see what worship does is it brings all types of people together, doesn't it? One of the catchphrases or catchwords you might say of our culture today is multiculturalism. God is the only one who can actually accomplish multiculturalism in its proper sense. Bringing people from every tribe and tongue, every skin color, every socioeconomic background, bringing them all together to bow before Him and praise Him and to receive all of His blessings and all of His mercy and grace. God's the only one who can do that. In fact, it's the wisdom of God, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, that will accomplish that. Think of all the things that divide people. Politics, race, gender, personal opinions, personalities, all types of things divide. But see what happens when we gather together in worship and we're looking heavenward at Christ. All of a sudden we have a submissive spirit to Him. And all the things that we once thought divided us from other people now amount to nothing. Because the thing that unites us is so great and so glorious that we're able to stand shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, let us worship the Lord together. Isn't He awesome? Isn't He glorious? Isn't He great? Any lack of unity within the body is actually first and foremost a problem of worship. Because you see, what we've done is we've elevated something to the place that only Christ should have we've elevated our personal opinions to that place we've elevated all types of things to that place and we've said now that's what's of most importance and i'm going to hang on to that but you see when we let go of that and we begin to worship jesus then it becomes a unifying force within the body of jesus christ so that we want we want all together more than anything else is to worship him I think in our day and age, one of the things that drives people within 
Christianity apart from one another is this sense of individuality that I don't need other Christians. I don't need other brothers and sisters in the Lord. And the opposite is just the case. That I need them desperately. And when I begin to worship with them, it begins to draw me to them. And I want what's good for them. And I realize they want what's good for me too. And so here, what we're told is that as we rightly worship God, it begins to unify our church more and more. But secondly, we become a dependent church. A dependent church. Verses 2 and 3 speak of how these particular men, Joshua and Zerubbabel, begin to build the altar of God so that they can once again offer sacrifices to Him. They're setting right first things first. And in verse 3 we're told, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. You might better say it, for with fear. For with fear or in fear. In other words, they did this while they were afraid. They were afraid that the people of the land would attack them. They are, they are vulnerable. They do not have a standing army. And yet what God is doing here is putting them in a position where they are completely dependent upon His power. Same is true for the Feast of Booths. Here they are living in basically makeshift huts. And they're having to symbolically declare we are dependent upon the Lord. It's only His provisions of grace that will sustain us. Nothing else will do. No wonder their worship was punctuated with declaring for He is good and His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. It's only by the steadfast, the covenantal love of God that we endure. Because He is the one who sustains us. And we are completely dependent upon Him. Now this is a theme that's going to run through the book of Ezra. Indeed, it runs through the entire Bible. You might say it runs through all of history. And indeed is woven into the fabric of creation. That we are the creature. God is the creator. We are dependent upon Him. And what we want most by worshiping God is to put ourselves in a position where we say, Lord, we are not dependent upon ourselves and our own strength. We are completely and utterly dependent upon You. If we're going to grow, it will be because You are the one who accomplishes it. I think the culture certainly trains us to be independent, doesn't it? Culture trains us to be independent. You hear it all the time. What we soak up all the time from the world is that we need to be those rugged individuals who accomplish everything for themselves. And the church that confesses that they are dependent upon God and yet functionally lives as if we are dependent upon ourselves is actually contradicting our profession of faith in the Gospel. Because the Gospel is all about saying, I have no power. I have no righteousness. I have no strength within myself. Christ in His grace must be the one to accomplish it for me. And so worship declares our dependence upon God. Well, finally this. Church that's growing and putting worship first is the church that's expectant expectant, you might say, about the future. 
Verse 11 here says this. The second half says, And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. There are shouts of joy. And yet, what do we see? Verse 12, But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. There's this mixture of joy and yet sadness. And what's taking place here is those people who are old enough to have seen Solomon's temple and all of its glory are now looking at the foundations of this particular temple. And they're sad because it may not measure up to the same glory that Solomon's temple possessed. And so there's this mixture, you might say, of joy and weeping. I think within every church there's those people who have a nostalgia for the past. Who want to say, wasn't the past glorious? Now, it's okay to praise God for the past. He says in His own Word, we're to praise Him for His previous works. But you see, it becomes sinful when we, we lament the fact that God is not doing what He did in the past. And the future could never be as good. The future could never be as good. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah would rebuke the people for that particular kind of disposition. That only what was in the past was good and could never be as good in the future. Now certainly this temple will not have the luster of Solomon's. It won't even have the Ark of the Covenant. The Davidic king will not reign on the throne of Israel like it had in the past. Things will not be set fully right in this particular way. And the people of God, you might say, are right to lament over that. But you see, the fullness of God's promises to Israel will not be realized in these physical externals. Because actually what He's wanting to do is prepare His people for the true temple, the true king, the true prophet, and the true priest who is Jesus Himself. And He's beginning to loosen their grip on the past that they might lay hold of the Christ of the future. You see, when we gather together in worship, we're forward-looking people who are expectant about what God will do in our church in this life and expectant about what God will do in glory. That the eternal weight of glory that Paul speaks about one day will be ours. And what we will possess is far greater than anything that this life has to offer to us. So our worship today is there to prepare us and to make us expectant about what's to come. Yesterday, Sally and I traveled to Columbia, South Carolina to go to a funeral funeral of a friend. She passed away last Sunday evening leaving worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbia. She walked out of the door, and as she was crossing the street, she and her teenage son were struck by a car, and she was killed. It was a very sad day for that church. 
But during the service and the sermon, as Dr. Ferguson preached, he mentioned to all those who were present that on numerous occasions throughout the week, what had been told him by people who are members of the church was that Claudia stepped out of the sanctuary of First Presbyterian Church and straight into the sanctuary of heaven. Friends, she was being prepared for glory. And that is what worship today is to do for us. To make preparations within our own heart and our own lives for the glory that's to come. When we gather in worship, we ought to be expectant. What is God going to do? And how is He going to prepare us today to receive the glory that He has for us the glory of His Son that He will share with all of His people. Friends, let us make first things first so that we would be prepared to worship God for all of eternity. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we look to You now And we pray in hope and in faith as Your Word has promised that the best is yet to come. So we pray now that You would help us to order our lives in such a way that the worship of God is central and paramount in everything that we do and in every choice that we make. Whether it is simply choosing to be a person of integrity in the way in which we carry out our business, or whether it's choosing to make corporate worship first and foremost, Lord, that everything, our great Savior Jesus Christ, would receive the praise and glory because He gave Himself up for us that he, we would have eternal life in Him. And so we pray that that would be the heartbeat of Reformation Presbyterian Church, the worship of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.